Hello everyone, welcome to a new episode of Opera After Dark. So Naomi, what are we talking about today? So today we are talking about a composer that I just learned about a week or two ago from a Classic FM article named Jose Mauricio Nunez Garcia. Wow. I have never heard of him. Neither have I. And I had never heard of him until just a few weeks ago. And then I found the article very intriguing, so I looked him up, and I thought it would be interesting to talk about. Nice. So, this might be a moment to highlight, like, I would love to know, Naomi, what are your, like, top musical review places, or where do you get your musicology articles from? What's your go-to? Oh, well, technically speaking, musicology articles and, like, music <laughs> journalism are two different things right um, right of course i, that was I don't a test. want to disparage i don't want to disparage music journalists because like i'm a huge fan of music journalism and they do a lot of research but kind of like if you're talking about very detailed musicological academic stuff versus um musical journalism that's more it has to be well researched but the the audience for the writing is a lot more broad yeah right i'm thinking more broad um, audience terms Okay. I have a few places that I really like. Um, Classic FM often has very entertaining articles. And so they also do great visuals a lot of the time. So I like that. Nice. Um, WQXR always has great blog posts and articles. Right. Also, the, the level um, of talent that they include in their videos, both uh, you know, performance and presentation, is just outstanding. That's what, is, I hear. Yes. That's what I hear. Yes. Um, and they also have like a lot of variety of topics because they have like an, an opera centric blog and then they have some other blogs and they have like multiple channels. So there's a lot of good stuff you can find there. All right. Um, Don't they do Operavore? Is that WQSR? Yeah, Operavore. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And I also really like Alex Ross's writing. And so he writes a lot in The New Yorker. Um, he also writes other places too. But um, yeah, so I kind of keep an eye out for anything that he's written. And then I have a few other, I guess I have a few other places. I really like the opera blog Schmopra. Yeah. And so I keep up with them. And then I Do you like Schmopra? Also... They're Canadian based, right? Out of Toronto. Yeah. Yep. They are Canadian based out of Toronto. Um, and then I do also like, like Opera Wire has some good, like more in-depth stories from time to time. And so like interviews with singers and, um, coverage or reviews of a performance. Um, I don't read them quite as much. Yeah. 
um, and because just the style of the writing is a little bit different, but I um, I do like Opera yeah. Wire for headlines. Like if yeah. something happens in the opera world, they generally know about it. post yeah. about it or write about it, and it's first exactly. And it's not often mm-hmm. like a full in depth like this is a whole expose. It's often just here's what happened, but. That's usually what I'm looking for. <laughs> so it, it works for yeah. me. But they do have also like a style of article that is longer and more in depth. Sometimes it's an interview. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really enjoy those, but they just don't pop up quite as often. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah. All right. And well, we've got some. That's, those are kind of my go-tos. Some I go-tos guess. to choose from. Classical FM, WQXR, Schmopra, Opera I mean, Wire. I also... I also follow the CBC and the BBC pretty closely, but that I think CBC is a little more Canadian centric, and so it might not apply to as many people listening. But they have some interesting arts coverage and that type of thing. So yeah. very nice. So you're perusing classical uh, classical FM. Right. You hear about today's composer. Remind me his name. Jose Mauricio Nunez Garcia. And what did he go by? Generally, Jose Jose Maurizio. Jose Maurizio. Okay, cool. Maurizio. Now, so he was born in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro, in 1767. Oh, and he died. Oh, so this he, is earlier than I was. Yeah, yes. I assumed later on. Okay. And he died there in 1830. So he's basically a contemporary of Mozart, Beethoven, Haydn. Dang. Okay. Which and is really interesting. Lived just as short as Mozart, just like offset by like 30 years. Yeah. So mm-hmm. he, and actually there's a connection with Mozart that we'll talk about in a moment. Um, but he's generally considered a super important composer, especially in terms of like bringing the kind of European classical style um, to, or not bringing it to Brazil, but kind of feeding that scene that was already there in in brazil but it was kind of a smaller art scene and so he's kind of credited with really like helping it flourish during his lifetime Mm -hmm. um and i also looked it up because at first glance his name looks spanish but it's also quite possible that he was portuguese and spoke portuguese and i'm not entirely sure what his first language was or what was the most dominant language in Rio de Janeiro at that time. So that's it could go either way. I'm yeah. not entirely sure. That's interesting because, of course, now mm-hmm. Brazil is full Portuguese. Right. Right. But I don't know what that evolution is and what they were speaking back then. Yes. And also there's an, another kind of interesting tie-in with um, Portuguese royalty and him. So nice. that's what made me wonder. But I'll get to that. So anyway, he... He was um, he was the son of a lieutenant in, I guess, the armed forces there and um, a woman named Victoria Maria de Cruz. And essentially, he was written about as being what they called at the time a mulatto. So mm. um, his mother was black and his father, I guess, was not. Um, but it seems like even though he had darker skin that this the mixed race of his heritage did not really affect his ability to kind of move up and 
as a musician and get training. So again, I'm not super familiar with the kind of cultural, cultural dynamics of that time in Brazil, but it seems like that was not a major problem for him. And that's so he great because that's at a time yeah. where clearly there were, I mean, there Definitely. have long since been many issues around race, but especially in that time, at least in North America, you have to assume that that wouldn't have been able to happen. So that's right. And great. and also, if you compare this to um, another composer we've talked about, uh, the Chevalier de Saint Georges, mm-hmm. who his life also overlaps with this time span, but he was active primarily in Europe, right? And he was a contemporary of Mozart and did a lot of amazing composing and and he was acknowledged as being an incredible performer and composer, but there we know that there were posts and commissions that he was turned down for on the basis of race. And so it seems like Jose Maurizio did not have this quite the same kind of struggle, um, which meant that a lot more of his music got disseminated and he himself could achieve a little bit more um, in his career. Nice. So um, it seems like there's like a, a legend that's gone around about him that he studied at um, a major like conservatory in Brazil at that time or music school. But apparently that has been uh, debunked, I guess. And um, but we do know that he did have like a music lessons with a private teacher. Um, we know he studied solfege. Um, and he also took kind of a wide variety of subjects, not just music. He studied philosophy, uh, theology, and nice. he eventually ends up um, becoming ordained as a priest in oh, 1792. Go figure. You know, it's oh, so funny go. when you were talking about being in the Americas and like really helping to establish a classical music scene. I did have the thought of like Da Ponte. And now yeah. we know very much like Da Ponte because yeah. he was also a priest. Yeah. Hey, and hey, so really quick before we speed on forward, can we touch on what solfege is? Solfege, sure. Uh, solfege is a system that was developed actually way back in the medieval era. Um, it's evolved over time, but its roots are in like Guido of Arezzo and all that stuff. Um, you know, and it that basically stuff. <laughs> that <Yeah>. stuff, um, <laughs> that medieval stuff, and so it it has. It's a system where um, you essentially assign syllables to the scale degrees in a major scale. Like different and so, pitches. Yeah, every pitch in the scale gets its own syllable. And so um, if you're familiar with the wonderful, amazing movie made in 1965 called The Sound of Music, mm-hmm. then you might know the song Do a Deer, a Female Deer, Ray, a Drop of Golden Sun me a name I call myself, right? And so essentially she's teaching them solfege syllables because the syllables are do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. Ah. And you essentially assign like the first note of the scale is do, the second note is re, the third note is mi, and so on. And so what uh, it, this was a big part of how people learn to sight read music um, that instead of um, immediately singing like whatever text is paired with the music, you would sing each pitch that you saw to the corresponding solfege syllable in that key. And by doing that, you kind of trained your brain to recognize like distance between notes and what that interval or or pitch jump was. Um, you train your brain 
to understand the relationships between pitches within the scale and it makes it much easier for you to sight read something without having any external kind of points of reference right yeah um kind of like and you know using individual letters to sound out words in a sentence yeah in a way although then you have to add like rhythm and than actual words. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, so solfege is kind of like your first step when you're just figuring out what the pitches are in the melody. Yeah. Okay, right? great. I didn't and want to then, just run past yeah. that without just a little bit of further explanation. I, no, it's good. I love and, solfege. And it's a big, big part of how singers were trained, um, like basically since the very beginning of professional singers in like Western art music. Solfege was a big part of their kind of method for learning. I also love solfege. And for all the music nerds out there, there is a kind of divide between solfege ideologies these days. Um, there is what we call movable dough, which means that um, the note that or the pitch that you assign the syllable dough to is whatever the tonic is of that key. So if you're in C major, then do is C. If you're in F major, then F is Do, right? Because that's the first note of the scale. If you're in B flat major, then B flat is Do. So you can kind of shift it around depending on what key you're in. There is another method called fixed Do where C on the piano is always Do. So it doesn't matter what key signature you're in, you always sing the syllables according to like a fixed, a fixed association between pitch and syllable. All right, guys. And it's time to pick yeah. sides. Are you yeah. a fixed dough or a movable dough? I learned on a movable dough. Mm-hmm. Naomi. So I I also I also learned movable dough, and I am a big proponent of musical of movable dough. Same. Learned on movable dough. Although excellent. I wonder. Like I feel like it would be really cool if you did learn on a fixed dough. I feel like it would help you develop like a really great sense of relative pitch and like near perfect pitch or as close as one gets without having so perfect pitch. So my understanding of the like ideologies of the two systems is that fixed dough became popular in connection with more contemporary music because mm. you were singing things that were more atonal or things where like key signatures were much more ambiguous Sure. And therefore, fixed dough allowed you to develop a stronger sense of, like, as close as possible to having perfect pitch, right? But the thing that movable dough does is it gives you a very good understanding of how pitches and harmonies within a key signature function. And I think it maps a lot more strongly to the type of music theory you study as a student. And so it's like helpful in two realms. Um, yeah. And so that's partially why I'm a big fan of movable dough because it gives you a stronger sense of kind of the tonal system and how it works. There you have it's it, folks. My, from my two cents worth. From Dr. Baratera. <laughs> Dr. Naomi Baratera. The definitive um, answer. Movable dough. Proponent of movable dough. <laughs> Opera After Dark promotes a movable dough. Right. Yes. I have to say, um, really quick, on a personal level, I also love solfege because when I went into music school in college, 
that was like a big part of ear training one, like the first semester of ear training, which mm -hmm. as I was a, like a choir kid in high school, we did a lot of solfege. So I felt really good about solfege, especially compared to just other facets of music theory. <laughs> and so that was a class That's that I fair. came into. And like, as everybody else was learning solfege, I was like, oh, thank God, something I already know. <laughs> Aww, baby Kyle. I know, I know. Yeah, I was kind of the opposite where I didn't know solfege going into it. And it was like this moment where I was like, wow, this makes so much more sense. <laughs> this is much easier to sight yeah. read when you know solfege. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So now that we have a history of solfege and also a definitive answer on the best mode of solfege, we can move forward. Naomi, please proceed. All right. So Jose... Mauricio, he studies solfege like most students of the time did. He takes music lessons, he becomes a priest, and he ends up doing a lot of musical work as a priest. And so he actually gets like appointed uh, a little while later in 1798 um, to be the, the maestro de capella at the cathedral in Rio de Janeiro, which is like a fairly important role in any cathedral at this time, even in Europe, because um, basically the Maestro de Capella was like the, the music musical director of the church, right? Mm -hmm. And in addition to playing as part of services, they would also compose a lot for for the purposes of church services. And so they composed, they conducted, and they often also taught music to like um, some of the some of the children in the area. And so he gets promoted to this role and it's really amazing because it means that he can kind of like focus on music as his primary profession. And so he starts composing a lot. Um, he also opens like a public music school. So he was teaching children of the area music free of charge, which is pretty cool, nice. like a community music school. Um, and he did this for 28 years and is credited with like teaching some of the best com um, musicians and composers uh, to come out of that particular generation through this community music school. And then he, so his fame was pretty like established and well-known. He was super well-respected. And then there was... Um, Prince Dom Wow Wow. I don't know how to pronounce this. Um, <laughs> I thought you were just inserting like a wow in the middle of it. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I did too. Prince I Dom um, wow. I, wow. It's, yeah. it's J O A with a like tilde on top O. Um, yeah. And it's Portuguese. And so the, the prince of Portugal, who would later go on to become the king, ends up actually visiting. Brazil at this time in 1808 and by this time um Garcia was very well known or Jose Mauricio was very well known and so he actually was like in charge of um taking care of all of the music for when this this prince arrived and um his talents were immediately recognized nice. um and so that also kind of helped bolster his fame didn't you say um, that the he prince was a big fan? Was he? He was born in seventeen ninety seven. He was born in seventeen sixty seven. Oh, seventeen sixty seven. Oh, okay. Oh, so yeah. really a contemporary yeah. of Mozart. I was thinking yeah. that he was born in seventeen ninety seven. 
Okay. No, no. I was thinking, shoot, in 1808, he was like 11 years old. What's the deal? (laughs) (laughs) Not quite. Okay, okay. Makes more um, sense. Yeah, so he's composing and he becomes known as well for being like an amazing improviser on the keyboard. So some some articles I read said that like he's credited with being one of the, the earliest improvisers, um, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. And there was also several people from Europe that traveled to um, Brazil at this time and actually heard music composed by him and witnessed him performing and working as a composer and um there was one person who was a former pupil of Haydn who did this and wrote about everything he observed and uh, was very impressed with with uh, Jose Mauricio and um then in 1811 we have the arrival of Marcos Portugal the most and um by this time he's Jose Mauricio is very, very famous, um, but his position was started to become a little bit more precarious. Mm-hmm. And um, and because Mar- apparently Marcos Portugal was like the most famous composer in, in Portugal, um, the most famous Portuguese composer who then comes to, from what I understand, came to visit Brazil. Um, and this kind of overshadowed Jose Maurizio's like popularity Mm. of the time. So from that point onward, um, he starts, his popularity starts to decline. And, um, and I, from what I understand, this Marcos Portugal, very famous Portuguese composer, um, really was like self-promoted himself in a way that Jose Maurizio did not because he was like a fairly humble priest. Right. Um, So that also played into kind of his decline in popularity. And then he so he ends up actually like getting fairly ill and um, his musical activities sort of decline. And then within the last like nine to ten years of his life, he actually died in extreme poverty um, because he got had like financial difficulties that kind of accumulated over that time. So he kind of has a sad end to his life but when he was like in his prime as a composer he was he was amazing and he actually he wrote a ton of music so um he he wrote well over 200 works um that we know about and that we have like access to music for those works um and there we believe that there's at least like over 100 works where the music has not survived, but we know that these works existed or had performances because like people wrote about them. And so like other people like in, in musical journalism, right at the time wrote about it. So we <laughs> Which know it's not that... the same as musicology. Let's be clear. Oh, come on. Come on. Yes, very different. <laughs> They're very different fields. Um, but he, for the record, I, I always <laughs> like, wish that I could write (laughs) no I wish that I could write as well as music journalists because don't try and save it it's happened move on their their writing is there's there's it's accessible and amazing there's nothing to save you are I think you are absolutely right that they are separate things it's it's like saying that like journalism and scientific study are very different somebody who studies and writes about their findings in climate change is different from somebody who writes a like journal article about 
right. climate change. Right. Both are admirable and important skills. Just different okay. things. And now we know. Yes. So, so one of the things that Jose Maurizio wrote that has been lost to time is actually an opera. Dang. And so this is where we tie this back in Opera After Dark to opera. So he wrote an opera called Le Due Gemelli and essentially translates to the two twins or yeah, the two twins. Oh, nice. And, oh, yeah, like Gemini. Uh, we, yeah. Cool. Yeah, Le Due Gemelli. And it, we know that it premiered at the Teatro Reggio in 1809 and it was part of like celebrating Queen Maria I's birthday. So... We at least know that much about it. Um, I could find basically nothing else about this work other than that. Bummer. So no recordings. But not that I could find. And it's it can be confusing because like other composers have written operas called Le Due Gemelli. So <laughs> the twins. <laughs> yes, the two twins. Um, so there's other operas out there by the same name, but um, from what I understand, this piece, the music has been lost. Uh, but there is another piece that he's very famous for, which is a Requiem Mass that was Ooh. considered just like one of the greatest Requiem Masses ever written. Nice. Um, kind of stands up next to like the great Requiems of Mozart, Foray, all the Brahms, you know, all the big the big names. And it's just not performed very often, but it it's those people who have performed it have talked about how amazing it is and how it deserves to be performed a lot more often. And it's interesting to think that he's like, he has this amazing work that is a Requiem Mass because he is also credited with being responsible for having Mozart's Requiem performed in Brazil for the very first time. Cool. So he was like the person responsible for getting that particular work performed in Brazil in the early 1800s. So, which is really not that long after Mozart died, yeah. right? So to have his Requiem Mass kind of like travel across the ocean, right? Yeah. To a whole other continent to be performed is pretty amazing. Are there and, are there recordings of Maurizio's Requiem? Yes, there mm, is. Yes, nice. there is. So Excellent. we can listen to some of that. Um, so, and he wrote a lot of sacred music. It is not just this particular mass, but this one is one that everyone who has performed it or sung it recently has only like good things to say about it because it's such a beautiful work. And he was very much composing in like the classical Viennese style. So the the type of music you're going to hear is very much within the, the sound world of Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven. It fits into that. Um, particular period. Nice. So well, let's listen to some of that yeah. now. Yeah.
So I think we have a very valuable lesson to be taken away from our composer, Maurizio. Shoot, was his first name? Jose Maurizio? Jose. Okay, fair enough. Jose Maurizio. Right. <laughs> One that I should remember. Nunez Garcia, but he went by Jose Maurizio. Yeah. And that's how you got to self-promote. It sounds like <laughs> he didn't do a lot of self-promoting, didn't advocate for himself, his music, and his career, and things didn't end as well as they could have. It's also interesting to think of how like geography played into kind of how his work spread or did not spread yeah. after his death, right? Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't sound like there was anyone who was like a champion for him. Yeah. Like bringing his music over to Europe. Right, well, I at bet. That time. Was he setting um, things in the Portuguese language? It seems like he said a lot in Latin because he was working in the church. Oh, yeah, right? of so course. A lot of right. sacred music. Yeah. His so requiem would have been, been in Latin. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's yeah, not a so... barrier. Cause it... No, yeah. but I think it's more just that like, you had people connected to Mozart that were promoting his work after he died, right? Yeah. Which is partly how it gained traction. And it doesn't sound like there were a lot of people that were kind of advocating for Jose Maurizio's work after his death, which is why it didn't have quite the same amount of like exposure, one could say, as some of the other composers. And he's also just geographically removed from kind of right. the hub of that style, right? Yeah. So that's so also sounds a like bit he, tricky. Sounds like he never went to Europe personally. Not that I know of, but I could be wrong. Okay. So, but from what I read, he did not travel there. This is interesting. This makes me think we need to do some episodes or maybe just one episode on, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, champions of popular composers or advocates of popular composers mm. to figure out who, that the, could be interesting. who the people are that, like, really, if it wasn't for them, then a lot of this music by some of these prominent composers would not still be around or in the canon. Interesting. Well, I yeah. feel like we've already talked about some of them. I mean, the only actually the only one that's coming to mind is like Alma Mahler. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also was thinking of someone like Joan Sutherland, who kind of like brought certain bel canto composers, oh. whose like works were rather obscure, back into Wait, kind of the public. Joan Sutherland and Richard uh, Bonning. Yeah. Could go That's a lot of different ways in that. Yeah. That's true. You could. Yeah. All right. Well, There's also like Constanza and her second husband. and mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. With Mozart. Yeah. Okay. We can sit with this and then we can come back with something to figure out who the people are. Yeah. That made the, made the music last. We'll have a better title than that. <laughs> right. <laughs> we'll workshop it. But now we know about Jose Maurizio. Great yeah. Brazilian composer. Do people in Brazil like do like people in the classical music world in Brazil? Yeah, is he known? Do they know him? I suspect that he's more well known there than he is here mm -hmm. or in Europe. But I can't say that I know a lot of people from Brazil, so I would have to ask well, like people who are currently working in classical music in Brazil today to know that for sure. We do have. People in Brazil that listen to this podcast. So if you're listening to this, we really need your help. 
reach out to us, info at Opera After Dark. Let us know if you yeah, know about Jose Maurizio. That would be extremely helpful. Or mm-hmm. if you prefer, you could always leave a review for the podcast and type it into the notes. We'll definitely read it. And then we can convey the message that way. But yeah, yeah. super interesting. All right. Well, we're going to find some more of his music and play out to that. Is there anything else we need to know, Naomi, before we, we wrap up? I mean, I think that there's nothing like crazy that jumps out to me, but it's just, I think other composers and people wrote about him like in the, um, what's it called? The Allgemeine Musikalische Zeitung, which was a very popular yeah. Can we- sure. newspaper in Germany. <laughs> nice. Um, Could you say like that this is a- it, it, like two times fast? Allgemeine Musikalische Zeitung. Allgemeine Musikalische Zeitung. Wow. Excellent. There you go. I'm amazed. Yeah. So yeah, yeah so like people a, knew of it. It's like a music, it's a music journal. It was a periodical, I guess, um, that a lot of composers of the day and especially into the Romantic era wrote in that. So like um, Mendelssohn wrote in it and Schumann wrote in it and like that type of thing. They're a bit later, but still it's, Kind of, it was like the place that you kind of learned about everything that was going on nice. in music, and he was written up in that particular in that particular news source. And so this was not like it wasn't like he was not recognized in his time. It's just his works did not have the kind of enduring staying power afterward. So yeah, and yeah, there's I think there's a lot more to his story, in especially in terms of like this other composer who kind of came and eclipsed him. So there's certainly more we could we could delve into that. But this is kind of the the broad strokes that I was able to gather since I came across the article on Classical FM. Well, thank you very much. And thank you, Classical yeah. FM, for the inspiration. And we'll be playing some more of Maurizio's music as we play out. So you can make up your mind about what you think about about his work. But before then... A quick reminder, we've already said you can contact us at info at Opera After Dark or on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, you can also find us at patreon.com slash Opera After Dark. We would love to have your support of the podcast there. And we'll be back with you next week with more Opera After Dark. Until then, I'm Kyle. I'm Naomi. And I'm Elspeth. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.